Hi, welcome to What Chance. I'm your host, Karin Elias. This podcast is about people who have been to prison. It's about their life before and after prison. I talk to educators, social workers, activists, and the formerly incarcerated. I want to find out what happened. Are some people at higher risk of going to prison? And what is it like to reintegrate into society? What does the justice system and society really care about? Punishment or rehabilitation? Come, join me. My guest today is Julian Chan. He is the founder and CEO of Ecobytes in the UK. He won a Set Squared Award and also spoke at TEDx. Welcome, Julian. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Karen. It's a pleasure to be here today. So you are a new entrepreneur, right? And Ecobytes is an interesting concept because you are concerned about sustainability, about wastefulness. So what made you come up with this idea? So initially I had a, an app that allowed uh, retailers to create their own flash deal campaigns um, and sort of switch them on and switch them off as they go, rather than some of the conventional applications that they're forced to use and forced to sign up to. Um, so I used to use a range of analogies in order to express my platform and how it worked. And one of them was, if you're walking past a bakery, I suppose, um, and it's going to close in five minutes and it has some sausage rolls or some cakes left over, how do you sell those rather than sending them to landfill? So the, the retailer would take a picture. Um, he would upload them to a feed, just like Instagram and any other social network. And you'll be presented with a feed of items, sort of like a Black Friday. I don't know if you have that where you are, but, you know, like a... Um, based on your geolocation, you would get a notification. And I found that the food waste element of what I was trying to do was close to my heart. And um, it seemed to get quite a good response. Um, so I came out on the market on LinkedIn and I um, expressed what I was doing and I was being compared to a similar sort of um, concept or two. I, I looked into those businesses. I analyzed what, what they were doing. And then I decided to go a bit deeper into the problem and I saw a gap in the market and I took it and I protected myself, created some barriers to entry, uh, trademarked myself and then that's the story so far. Well, it's pretty impressive. That's pretty quick thinking and seeing an opportunity and reacting. I have to mention I'm in the US, you're in the UK and so your business and your life is in the UK. Were you also born in the UK? Yes, I was born in the UK. My parents, they were immigrants from the Caribbean and they came over into the 60s and I was born in 1980. And so how was your, was your life preparing you for this entrepreneurial experience? Did you do anything when you were a kid that kind of led up to this? I've always been a person that likes to see things develop. I like to see things grow. Um, I, li I like children. Um, I, I've always been quite good with my hands. Um, so I would always be the one to try and build something in the garden or build a brick wall or um, I would always try my hardest to do everything. You know, if I can do decorating in the house, 
and I've always kind of analysed and questioned things. I was told off when I was younger for doing that, questioning so much things, but I've always been someone who questions and wants to analyse and I've been quite a logical thinker throughout my life. So it sounds like you were also really curious about things at an early age. Now, sometimes when people, you know, come up with ideas or concepts, when we look back at their lives, there had been some adversities that they had to overcome. And that's maybe what gives them the strength. Was there anything in your life in that way? Funnily enough, I was having a conversation with somebody about this earlier. And I think in terms of a mentality, some of it will be learned behavior. Some of it will be genetic. Um, but I come from a very strong family, like an extremely strong family, mentally strong. And I think that's part of my DNA um, for us to be resilient. As a culture, African-American people are quite proud as a nation. That's not to say anybody else isn't, but just I, I'm aware of my own culture. So I think in some aspects, some of the adversity, now I can look back and see some of the sort of early exposure I had to certain things. I think that is what's kind of shaped me. I can't really remember in terms of traumatic adversity. But when I look back, I know my mother had four children. Um, by the age of 26. Um, she had three at the age of 20 um, when I was born. Um, she was a single mother. Um, I mean, she was always kind of in the pursuit of love. And so sometimes that would, you know, it coupled with her two jobs and her studying a master's degree. Um, I didn't get much attention in the home. Now I see it. Um, I love my mum dearly and I've, and I've always been close to her. I'm, um, naturally an attentive, caring, nurturing kind of person. So um, typically, I would say that some of the adversities most definitely led me to where I am today. Yeah, your mom sounds like a pretty incredible person. She must have worked really hard to raise you all. How do you feel your childhood was? Did you get to do the things you wanted to do? How was, you know, how was your circle of friends? What did you do when you were a kid? It's, it's quite strange, actually, because I grew up in a very strict household. Um, even though my mother wasn't there a lot um, due to her work commitments and trying to provide for the family, when I was allowed out of the house, I think I was seeking in some way that companionship, that love and that attention. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean when I was playing with my circle of friends. That means that when I was uh, at school, I would be the class clown because I just wanted everybody to see me and notice me. And, oh, Julian, haha, you're so funny. Some of the insecurities that I think that I faced as a youngster led me to make decisions and uh, act a certain way that I knew wasn't fitting in my nature. Um, and this is the hard thing. But when you're young, you don't realize that. But as an adult now, I do realize that, that some of the choices I was making was definitely not what I wanted to do. But just due to peer pressure or just the need for attention and to fit in, I think that's what I did. And some of my other friends came from less strict backgrounds. Unfortunately, my first circle of friends, they acted in a certain way that led me to believe that some of what we were doing was normal in some way. Um, and they normalized some of the things that I know now are not accepted in society, should I say. And part of that early exposure led me to believe and sort of desensitized me to think that 
if your parents can't afford something for you and somebody else has it, that it's okay to take their property and have it as your own. And then over time, um, it goes from a skateboard to a BMX, then it goes to like a high-end mountain bike, and then you want the moped, and then you want the car, and then you want the motorcycle, and then you want the money. So it kind of escalated um, over the years, but all the time, I think you grow up and you know it's wrong, but if it doesn't necessarily feel wrong, or you don't have anybody immediately telling you, right, stop, that's wrong, kind of go along with it. When I was about 13, between the age of 13 and 15, now I look back at it, I was bullied by my own circle of friends. And I don't know whether or not that was my energy and my nature. I was a genuinely nice guy that my kindness was taken for weakness. I can attribute that to bullying in some way because I felt isolated at times. I felt like I didn't fit in. And that led me to then think, okay, well, I'm going to do this to be on your level. Furthermore, I'm going to be above your level, um, just based on my own personal insecurities and ego and pride. I was teased for the size of my nose, for instance. You know, I was the weak fence for everybody to laugh off because I wouldn't react violently. Um, I wouldn't really react because if you do, then you're, you're kind of ganged up on. You know, when I look back at it now, it's kind of sad, but it's the reality. And, I, and now I understand that because I need to understand that because certain parts of those um, the psychological term is schemas. Some of those schemas and those early exposures have led me to have life traps now. So when these schemas stroke life traps are triggered, I go to such an extreme um, due to the anxiety and the feeling that I felt when I was young. And this is so subconscious. Like I, sometimes I don't even know it's happening, but I'm aware of it now and I can control it. I can't stop the thought process, but I can stop the actions from the thought processes. And this is the important thing here, is being aware that these things are inside you. And unfortunately, sometimes these scars are hard to heal without serious therapy or, you know, going through a serious program um, and being open enough to allow yourself to have those programs. And it's led me to sort of overcompensate. And it, I later on in life, it forms itself as some kind of anxiety in some way. And my panic attack might be overcompensating, you know, People react to anxiety in so many different ways. And I underestimated that. So the kid in school who gets a bit anxious because, you know, he feels a bit embarrassed because his trainers have got holes in it and no one else has got trainers holes in it. His panic attack is to throw things across the classroom or to react aggressively because that's just him having a panic attack. Whereas some people might hyperventilate, some people might pass out. It's just how people react sometimes to anxiety. It's kind of understanding some of the adversities that I went through that kind of shaped my life. I want to make sure I understand you right here. So you are describing the life of an adolescent. You know, adolescent, I think, is a difficult stage in life where we're trying to figure out where do we fit in. And sometimes we might be in circles where we feel we fit in, but that might not be the best environment for us. So it sounded like that was what happened to you. And you mentioned, so if you're taking things from others are you saying this is like stealing things from others yes of course um i'm not a, a physical person yeah so the hands-on sort of stuff i personally wouldn't take part in because i'm sensitive to people's emotions if i feel that i'm hurting you mentally or physically and i can sense that from you i end up adopting your feeling 
so I start feeling how you're feeling. So that's kind of stops me sometimes. And sometimes when my friends would be like, take your jacket off, you know, this rich kid has got this jacket on, this latest puffer jacket from the time. And I remember this like it was yesterday. And this was like 28 years ago, nearly 30 years ago. Like, take off your jacket. You know, if they didn't, then it, they'd rough them up a little bit. That, in, inside of me, that, that never sat right with me. Yeah, okay, I was a thief. Well, it's not all you are. It's something that you did at some point in your life, right? Of course. Did it go further? Did you steal bigger things? Did it have any consequence? Did anybody ever catch you? Um, from a young age, no. And I think the only reason why some of my peers went to prison around 14, 15 years old was because they were very hands-on. From a young age, maybe 15, I started smoking cannabis. Um, and that was another contributing factor because I believe that in some ways that definitely does affect your thought processes, um, whether you're sober or if you're high. If it's in your system, it can affect your emotions and your ability to make conscious decisions at times. I became addicted, should we say, but when you're young, you don't think you're addicted, but I was clearly addicted. So we used to start knocking on doors And first, when we was like 14 years old, we'd be like, yeah, can we get a bag of weed? And we'd snatch the weed and run off. And it was fun to get a chase. And, you know, we got free weed. And um, that sort of escalated into us kind of going into homes of dealers and trying to obtain their property and their money. You're living that fast life. You want the fast money. I'm being very open about it, but I'm very ashamed. And I'm not proud of what I've done, but I need to be honest and get that across because if I don't, then I would just be trying to sugarcoat who I am. And I'm not trying to do that because people won't be able to relate or learn from me. But I just, I am no way proud of it. I'm confident in me saying it, but I'm not confident in doing it. Yeah. Moving on, we used to go into homes sometimes and we used to rob drug dealers and stuff. And then that kind of escalated because you have to remember that drug dealers are, they have a level of violence as well to them. They have a level of criminality to them. So that was more risky in terms of, you know, getting in trouble with the wrong drug dealer, knocking on the wrong door. He might have a knife or he might have protection. But we started gravitating into like into businesses. Wherever we thought there was a high volume of cash, we would go in there. Most of it was threats, I believe. And I know now um, physical and mental abuse and violence is just as bad as each other. It was disgusting and heinous. We would go into post offices, corner shops, places where they sell computer games, computer chips, those kind of things. And you, you end up getting complacent. This is what happens to every prisoner and every criminal in some place. You become complacent and I became complacent. And I went into a post office. It was quite an, an, an elaborate one. We, it was the first, first time we've kind of sort of gone sort of high scale. As I said before, I never really felt right when I was doing these things. And it's so ironic, to be fair. Um, but you've still got that trauma of that, oh, I'm not going to fit in. And if I back out now, no one's going to like me. You know, I can't back out now kind of thing. But I didn't really want to do it, if I'm honest with you. And so I decided that I was going to stand by the door. And I was going to stop people from coming in and coming out. And my co-defendant, he entered the establishment and took control of the place and obtained the money. While he was trying to do that, he got into a tussle with somebody. Um, and then I had to take the role of the person who was collecting the money. Whilst I was collecting the money, I picked up a plastic bag that had more coin bags in it. And because it never had any value to it, I threw it back into the safe. And the safe was forensically examined. 
And because I was only supposed to be at the door, I was never meant to touch anything that was not supposed to be touched. My fingerprints were taken from that. And um, I was subsequently arrested for robbery and possession of a firearm, um, to which I received seven years in prison. Um, in this country, you have to do two thirds of your sentence. So I ended up doing four years, eight months, uh, just shy of five years on that sentence. Um, I think it would be interesting to hear what is it like when you're in a prison in the UK? Are there programs? You're allowed books sent in. So even though you might not be able to obtain the GCSE level, for instance, you can get GCSE textbooks sent in or there are charities, churches, organizations. There is uh, even Waterstones, I think, were giving away 50 pounds worth of books. And there's charities that if you need a dictionary or they give you, I think they give you up to 50 pounds worth of books. So first and foremost, I always say that prison is not to blame for choices people make. You know, if you're tired of smoking drugs and living on the street and you're homeless and you're tired of alcohol, then you're going to get up and you're going to say, I've had enough. But if you keep making excuses for your life, irrespective of what resources you have at your place, you choose to go and buy alcohol. You know that when they, especially in this country, you know when they've given you an opportunity to have a home. We live in a state like everybody gets a chance. There's houses for everybody. The prison I was in was a maximum security prison. And fortunately, there are prisoners in there who are doing such long times that they have to keep them mentally stimulated in some way is very violent as a prison. What we have to really realize and what we have to come to terms with is like the worst people of society are prisoners. Now, yes, you've got your terrorists, you've got your child killers, you've got your serial killers, you've got your murderers. And yes, you've got your white collar, for instance, you've got levels of that. But in society, who is worse than a prisoner? There is nobody in society that people hate more than prisoners. So where are the resources? Why should I put money into a prison when I could put money into a university? So sometimes we blame the prison, but they are very short on their budget. And yes, okay, right now it costs £35,000 to keep me in prison for a year. And I would love £35,000 worth of angel investment. That would change my life right now. But unfortunately, the way the system's geared up now, they would much prefer to spend that £35,000 on me to go into prison rather than me being on the clux of prison and close to prison and saying, listen, I feel like I want to reoffend. Can I have £35,000, please? Or you can end up giving me two years and spending seventy. It makes business sense. It's an investment, <laughs> you know, and, and I can pay it back in a couple of years. Just let me have a chance. It's so ironic. Um, moving back to the opportunities in custody, I think they create a foundation for you. And you have to remember that, you know, if you was to do a university degree, you might only get three people turn up. You know, there's people that just won't engage or don't have no desire to change. So as much as They provide things, they provide things at a very low cost effective way so that they can um, save money in some aspects. Where I was in the first time in the maximum security, they would take you up to GCSE level and then they have like an open university degree. Unfortunately, they won't let you do certain programs because obviously you need computer access or you need um, real like lecture, like lectures and stuff. But there is a lot, there's a lot of opportunities and you take what you want from that. For me, I was very materialistic when I went to prison. I was 21 years old and my whole insecurities were around materialism. I literally 
was committing crime or designer image. Well, I wasn't building houses. I wasn't building hospitals. I wasn't taking care of my mum. I wasn't building land out in Africa and building. I was just doing it to fit in. And that is so disgusting when I look back at it now. I was filling the pockets of designer labels, designer cars, and I risked my freedom just for that. Funny story, actually, I met somebody in prison who um, was a very, very, very successful drug dealer, multi, multi-millionaire drug dealer. And look at him, you would just think, guy, look at him in prison clothes, you know, because people scorn people that wear prison clothes in prison, believe it or not. And then there was a documentary that came on the television about drug dealers and imports, and he was on there. And the amount of people that the next day, they were like, oh, you're right, you're right, how are you? You're right, mate, you want anything, you need anything. But they used to treat him like some old white guy from Antigua who wears prison clothes. It kind of dawned on me and I was thinking, this my whole material thing, it, it, it doesn't mean anything. This guy is worth more than everyone in this prison and he doesn't care. He's still wearing his prison clothes because he's warm and they're clean and he doesn't mind. Sort of from that sort of point there, I just started wearing prison clothes all the time. And I realized that everybody loved me for me and not for what I was wearing. I still have that attitude now. You know, I still don't dress within my means. I don't follow any kind of fashion as long as my clothes are clean and warm. I'm happy for that. That's one thing I took from that. Um, also, the budget. So you get maybe seven, eight pound a week. And believe it or not, you can buy enough stuff with commissary, I think they call it in America. You can buy enough stuff from the canteen, especially if you've got outside support, for 30 pounds a week. And you can survive on that. What more do you really need in terms of substance to sustain yourself? Moving forward to 2006, when I was released from custody, um, I had the best intentions. A lot of the time, repeat offenders will tell you this, um, they had the aspirations and the intentions to be successful. But when they actually hit the reality and, and the pressures of life, um, they went back to what they knew. Anyway, uh, in 2006, I was released from custody. And immediately I started working within the first week I was working. Um, I was doing menial work at the time, but it didn't bother me because it was work, it was keeping me up and it was, it was paying my wages. And I felt satisfied at the fact that I could now go to a bank and I could see the wages. And because I had that sort of discipline from prison where I had to budget. So, you know, you have to budget exactly what you're spending at what time. And it, it felt good again. I, I was released in the July. And in September, one of my old friends, I saw him in the local town centre. And he said to me, do you still run? Because he got in quite late. He's like, yeah, I run. I said, I'll, I'll beat you in a race. And he was like, all right, then let's go to the track then. You know, forget this street racing. It's not street racing anymore because he had all the spikes and all the gear and everything. He was like, let's go to the track. I was like, okay, let's go to the track. Like, I don't need spikes. I'm going to beat you. I'm definitely going to beat you. <laughs> and then um, we ended up having a race and I beat him by at least 20 metres. And he was so upset. But funnily enough, on the other side of the track, um, there was a British bobsleigh development driver. How crazy is this? And he saw me and my friend Ryan run. He was like, have you guys ever thought about trying out for the, for the British bobsleigh team? And I was just fresh out of prison. And I'm like, British bobsleigh team? Because I've seen the film Cool Runnings. I'm like, mate, I don't do cold. You know, he's like, no, we have warm tracks. And, you know, you can go around and kind of trick me. But I said, look, I'm not interested. And my mate was like, well, I'll try it out. He was like a um, aspiring athlete. And then he was like, he, for weeks now, before the testing day, he was calling me, Julian, are you going to come? Are you going to come? Are you going to come? And I was like, nah, I'm not coming. He's like, look, you've, you've been messmates for years. You know, come and at least support me. 
it's a day out. Let's go down to Bath, which is a really nice place in England. Anyway, so we've gone down there. And I'm watching these guys. And I'm thinking, like, I think I'm faster than him. What? These guys are in Olympic teams. And ah, they look slow. Went down there. Literally, I just blitzed everybody there. Like, I was the fastest over 30 metres. I jumped the furthest. I was the strongest in the, in the lifting, testing. And the development team and the performance director kind of just took me under their wing and it was like right you're coming with me like you know you are going to win us some medals and they kind of put me on a pedestal they knew my circumstances because I wasn't able to travel because I was still on a probationary period um, but they were fantastic they wrote to my probation officer they sent letters from the mayor you know and they got me out of the country within like four months which is like unheard of especially coming out from violent offense so for the next three years British champion sponsorship after sponsorship you know everything was going well for me I'm on Eurosport I'm on TV I'm doing interviews I'm working with the Prince's Trust which is a local charity you know I'm doing massive things interviews and I'm in this book and this newspaper and you know this guy's changed his life look at him now kind of thing I've done that for three years from 2006 to 2009 so from 2009 it went into 2010 season and at the end of the 2010 season would have been the Vancouver Games. So the first part of the Vancouver Games was like a testing phase, kind of like a, a training pre-Olympics, which was in Park City, America. I've gone to the American embassy, the guys at the team have said, look, we need to go to the embassy because if you're going to be going to the Olympics, the last thing we want to do is build the team, you get the customs and they send you back because then we're going to have to try to fly in a resident, you know, and because it's a four-man sled, it's a team effort when you're pushing it. It's not a one-man band. Um, and you build that sort of relationship and rapport and you can feel the sort of camaraderie within the team anyway. So I've gone to this American embassy. I was literally in there for five minutes. I waited three hours. I was in there for five minutes. And she was like, no, you're not going to America. You've got firearms on your record. I was like, it was an imitation firearm. I don't care. Apply back in 10 years. And then she shut the flap down on me and just left me there. And I just started crying. And even now speaking about it, it really does touch me because everyone was so proud of me. I finally found something that was so naturally given to me. I could do well from it. Um, and I had the respect going back to the young age 13 that I never had and I was respected in my own right for who I was especially on the fact that they knew my past which is always important for me so literally overnight once I gave the news to the team I was dropped no sponsors no support um all my teammates were focused on the Olympics so it stopped kind of being my friend it wasn't intentional but it was just their focused you know um I was kind of left on my own on my own devices and that kind of turned me back to smoking cannabis to mask the pain. Because whilst I was an Olympic athlete, you can't smoke, literally you can't do anything. Um, so I kind of rebelled and I kind of was like, F the system, you know, if you don't want to help me. And I, I played the victim. I'm just going to be honest with you. I played the victim. I wasn't a victim because fundamentally I had made that choice, which led to that. And you have to face the consequences of your actions. I kind of played victim and I started drowning in my sorrows. I've never really been a drinker. I'm also a smoker, so I just smoked to mask the pain. But as I said, I always wanted to build something. So I started working on a business idea. At the time, I had no education in terms of funding and angel investors and philanthropy and crowdfunding. I knew nothing about that. So where I was buying the cannabis, I knew who was selling the cannabis. So what happened was, is that 
I started kind of brokering drug deals in large suppliers and people who were kind of dealers. Um, and I would literally make a phone call. I wasn't, in my opinion, how I thought was totally wrong. I will, I'm not getting involved. I'm not touching anything. You know, you have that attitude. Ah, oh, it's not. Well, I'm, I'm not, it's not nothing to do with me. I can get them to to me. I'm connecting the dots, kind of thing. Um, silly me. Anyway, so um, one of the guys had made off with a substantial amount of money from the person who I got the drugs from, and I was held responsible for that. And the guy who um, held me responsible was like, "Look, Julian, you're gonna have to pay back this money." You know, and I didn't have the money. I think my only alternative was going back into the quick money, watch somewhere for a little while, go in there, robbery. To be honest with you, that was... But I thought, firstly, it doesn't sit right with me. Secondly, that's no longer me anymore. It's not physically in me to do that anymore. Like, I'm so consciously aware that it's not right anymore, that my body just wouldn't allow me to do it anymore because it just it does, definitely doesn't fit right with me. So at the time, I thought my only solution was to try to... The person who owed the money out to meet the people who uh, who he owes the money to so i under pretenses told him let's meet up you know let's try and sort out this money he trusted me he was happy that i wasn't gonna do anything to him and i told the guys where he'd be and what time and they ended up taking him into the back of a van and kidnapping him and they were violent towards him and by chance the police pulled the van over and found the victim in the back of the van so the victim obviously told his story. He didn't implement me. I don't think he knew that I was the one that kind of set him up. Phone records showed my phone records, which was then registered to me, which then, you know, then they started doing like cell site analysis. So they knew they could pinpoint me where I am. And in this country, I don't know how it is in America, but if you're part of something, you're just as culpable as the people that done it. You know, whether you're sitting outside the bank in the getaway car two miles away, whether you're in America and you say, right, Julian, go to England and go and do this, you're just as culpable as me going to do it. So you're going to get exactly the same punishment as me. So um, I was sentenced to 12 years um, and I've done six years, um, which led me to from 2011 to 2017, I was released so four years ago, April. And this time, it's a funny story. It was around 2013 and I was in a prison. Um, it was a privately run prison, so the resources were much better and the conditions were much better. And I went up to a maths class, but because it's a privately run prison, they're very much about payment on results, get the people through the education department, that kind of thing. And so they force you into maths and English by saying, look, if you can't read English or you don't have a level of English, how are you going to use the gym? How are you going to read the safety instructions on the machines? Like they would try everything they can to get you to do these courses. But anyway, cutting them through short, they put me in this mass class. I'll never forget this guy to the day I die. His name was Demi. This was nine years ago and I can still remember his name. Turkish guy, such a beautiful guy. He was like, Julian, what's the matter? And I was like, mate, I don't want to be here. Like, and I'm like, you're forcing me to do things I don't want to do. Like, this doesn't make sense. I don't want to do maths. Like, this is not going to help me in my life. This is functional skills. This isn't even proper maths kind of thing. Um, and he said, what don't you like about maths? And I was like, just when I was in school, I just didn't like maths. He was like, so what, what didn't you like about it in school? I was like, you know, the algebra and formulas and all them kind of things. It's just confusing to me. And he said to me, Julian, if I can teach you algebra in two hours, 
which was how long the session was for, will you stay in my class? And I was like, mate, if you can teach me two hours, I'll be your teacher's assistant. Like I will stay in your class forever kind of thing. Literally, he taught me my life lesson. He has contributed to making me who I am today because he taught me that never be afraid of the numbers. Every problem has a solution. So you just have to get this number over the equal sign. When you put it there, this is what you got to do. Don't worry about how many numbers are there. That's what's going to scare you. Think of the solution to the problem. And but literally by the end of the class, I had formulas and fractions and everything mixed in with algebra. That's how much he taught me because after that, I was like, okay, do six numbers now then. It led me to understand and because I always understood the solution and I was able to recall that every time I'd done the equation, it made me understand that intelligence is about learning, absorbing, and recalling. If you remember everything I've just said to you today and you can recall that and you can speak on behalf of me, it doesn't mean you're intelligent, it means you've got a fantastic memory. And when you needed to recall and that you remembered everything because the storage in your memory and the only way that you can to, um, grow that is by learning because it's a muscle. And if we feed the muscle and exercise it, it will grow. Literally, and this is a message to anybody out there, anything you want to do in life, all you have to do is listen, understand it and be able to recall it. And that could be medicine. That could be Anything you can think of, brain surgery, it, it, all they have is a very, very good memory and a drive to succeed. That is it. There's, there's nothing special about special people. They've just got a very good memory, which you can train, and they're able to recall it when it needs to, when it needs to come. Yes, they might have a bigger capacity to remember more things. So then that led me to take part in a degree. Um, so I've done uh, six subjects. So I've done business social science, Java programming, object-oriented programming, law, contract law, just maybe the first year just to understand the basics, um, business communications level two. And I ended up getting a degree in my time while I was in there. And whilst I was learning my degree, I learned about business, I learned about technology, and I started thinking about the form that I've built today. But what I did was whilst I was working on the business, I realized that I needed to sustain myself. It's so ironic. I took one of the skills I learned in prison, which was cooking. And I decided to start cooking from home and within my own social circle and on social media, I would take a picture of the food I cooked and I would sell it. And I was registered with the local council um, as a food business. And I'd done really well from that. And that took me into a takeaway. Um, I invested the money and I, I started my own takeaway and I'd done really well from that. And I used those savings and I used that income to pay myself and to invest in the minimum viable product that I have today. You know, this is really an amazing story. And just thinking about how many times you pivoted, how many times there was a hurdle, you had to go figure out how to jump over. And what I'm wondering is this one teacher that taught you about math, he saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself. Do you think that you met somebody like him before but didn't recognize it or did you not have somebody like him in your life earlier on and would that have made a difference okay so I've done a lot of mentoring and I speak to a lot of people a lot of young offenders a lot of young kids 
and I have to remember when I was young and you have to be receptive. You can go in and out of prison, but there's going to be one day when you're like, I've had enough. You know, it's when it is the right time. To your second question, um, I don't know if I would have had somebody in my life before that. But the reason why I think he was so instrumental in my life, because I genuinely felt like he cared. And he was a very sensitive, caring, loving. You can see like his grandkids love him. Like his kids are well looked after. You can see he's come from a loving home and he was there to help people. There was, you know, there are people who would be like, yeah, I want to help people, but they won't go against the grain. They won't go above and beyond. This man would go above and beyond. And it literally brings tears to my eyes when I speak about this man, because he is one of maybe five people in 11 years that I've felt genuinely like he's been my family member. And I think what he saw in me was deeper than what his eyes and his brain knew. I think there was some kind of spiritual element to that. And as I'm getting older, I'm understanding about soulmates and um, soul partners and people that are supposed to be in your life. And I think higher powers, the universe knew what I was intending to do, what legacy I want to leave. And since then, I'm getting the people in my life who I need, who care. When I was younger, maybe, I've had people speak to me. I've been to so many places. Um, so I've always been in and out of school. And you always get these social workers, these care people, and you go to these places when you get excluded and they tell you all these things. And then you have your mum literally crying, son, please stop this, son, please stop this. And you you won't even take what your mum says. You know, if that can't penetrate you, I'm not going to listen to my mum and she's crying and I love my mum and I'm sensitive to how she is, but my insecurities get in the better of me and I'm putting my insecurities and my it's a mental health problem i'm putting my mental health before the the love of my mum so to speak sometimes it's hard for people to try to make that impact on people i think it's when when you're ready and when when you send the signal out that you want to change that you've really had enough and you're willing to make those sacrifices you're willing to pivot when you need to pivot you're willing to go without and my pride could be like i know and this is what I said in my TED talk, and this is so important. And I'll use the analogy of the hurdle, yeah? So we're in a race, there's eight lanes, yeah? You know you're not really the fastest, but you're taking part because you want to win, yeah? But everybody's got the best spikes on, the best running gear, you know, they've got the best nutritionists, and you might be a bit rugged around the edge, but you've still got that natural talent and that drive to succeed. So you've got these hurdles, and these guys are sick, us and I'm five foot nine and I'm thinking how am I going to win this race but because I can see the finish line it doesn't matter how long it takes me to get to that finish line there's going to be people better than me on the left and there's going to be people better than me on the right am I going to cheat and take performing hearts and drugs to get to the line quicker am I going to go and steal the best running spikes to make my time quicker am I going to accidentally trip up the fastest guy to make my life better? No, I'm not. And guess what? There is no rule that says I can't push the hurdle down and walk over it. There's no rule that says I have to jump over it. I just need to get to the line and stay in my lane. What I might do is I might crawl underneath it on this occasion. If they say I can't touch it, 
Because if you touch it, you're not in the race anymore. Then I'll crawl underneath it. Do you know why? Because I can see the line at the end. Regardless of what's happening around me, how fast people are, how successful they are, how good looking they are, how many fans are cheering them on, how many likes they get, how many followers they get. As long as I know that I'm going to get to that line and that's my gratification. That's my win. Yes, I didn't win the race. I came last. People were laughing at me. But who cares? My goal and my aim was to reach that line by any means necessary. And that's what's kind of stuck with me throughout the whole of my time. And that's why I will never, ever, ever give up. Ever, ever, ever give up. Even if it takes me five years to reach that line. Even if I'm broke for five years, I don't have a car, I don't have this. Even whatever happens in my life, I will never give up. I can now see that goal. Or I thought about that goal. I thought about that line. And I, in theory, I wanted that line. But when you start putting that race into practice and you count in these hurdles and you're saying, right, I've got 13 to jump over till I get that line. As long as you can see that line, keep going for that line. And I won't stop going for that line. Yeah, you sound very determined, creative and innovative. It's really exciting. And I can imagine that when you speak to young people, that's very inspiring. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm wondering what you mentioned that you do that. What excites you for the next few years? What would you like to do in your life in the next few years? Over the next years, I plan to build my business to a point where I can have people managing it. And I don't have to worry too much about the day-to-day -day running of the business. Um, then I'm hoping to be able to have those resources in place so that I can build. I have a business plan for a, um, an academy kind of place. I don't know what they're called in the US, but in the UK, they're called academies, private academies. Um, so you've got like sports academies, you've got health and beauty academies. Um, it's just like an alternative to school. So I'd really like to build one for not even necessarily disadvantaged kids, but people like myself who have always had that natural talent. And I want to nurture that. I don't want to just give them the idea. I want to build it for them. I want to help them. So I want to be a mentor, a business mentor to as many kids as I can, you know, and have them work alongside me all in one building, you know, and I'm just nurturing them and helping them. And, you know, if they need capital, I, I can invest in them. They need pitching advice. I can help them. You know, I just want to be able to help as many people as I can not take the path that I took. But I think it takes more than words. Um, it's action. And you have to hold their hand. You, you have to. Because me and you can have this conversation now for an hour and I can be so inspired. But once the screen goes down, I'm still back to Julian in my own life. And it gave me the idea to... Um, start a charity alongside that whereby if there is anybody who wants to you know get into athletics or football practice or whatever they want to do I, I want to be able to fund them through that journey but also support them because there's a lot of fathers out there who don't see their child through whatever the reason that may be through no fault of their own who would love to be able to give that love to a child and if I can replicate that father child relationship with somebody um i would love to do that so i want to set up a charity where we can work with some some dads who don't get to see their children but also want to give the love to the child unfortunately the world we live in there's an assumption made that if you've committed a criminal offense then you're not safe around children which is ludicrous and i think once i've built myself to a point where i feel stable 
because I think you need to be mentally stable, physically stable, emotionally stable, financially stable. When I feel that I'm complete to, to my expectations, I really want to go out there and, and, and share my story. That's really what I want to do. I, I, I want to really inspire people. You know, I, I do want to be a serial entrepreneur. Money is not my motivation. My success and my self-worth is my motivation. Yes, that money will be a byproduct of that if you're successful in business, but I don't really care about money like that. You know, I really do want to give back. But sometimes people say, do I, do I feel guilty? That I'm very disappointed in myself. Like I'm extremely disappointed in myself. It's hard to have these conversations. I don't think I've ever had this conversation with anybody. Uh, you're the first person. This is like the world's first. Because um, I get quite emotional about it. And I've had to fight back tears on about four or five occasions since I've been speaking to you. Because although I had to lose my freedom to gain my freedom, although I had to cause pain in order to feel pain, I still feel like, because it's not me, like I know it's not me, I know that I had to go through that to get to where I am today. And it's not something that people should practice. Don't get me wrong, it's not a miracle and it, it will only work for some, as we said. I'm telling you now that this is what I always preach to the young guys. I'm like, look, I know I can't stop you from doing that. And I can speak to you about you know alternatives and try my best to help you to achieve some of the alternatives, but I know what it's like. When I was 15, 16, 21, there is no one that could tell me anything, not, as I said, not even my own mother. But what I do tell them is, and they really need to focus on, is the consequences after. The premiums on your car insurance. If you tick criminal offence, and they don't ask you to be specific, just from your criminal, your premium's going up $200, $300 minimum, just because you've ticked that box. And this is what I mean about there is no discrimination. There is prisoners and, and that's it. Now, yes, there's more heinous prisoners, but they're all in one place and nobody really cares. You're just a number and you're just a bum on a bed. Your, your opportunities to travel, the restrictions that you have on your life, um, your job opportunities, judgmental nature, always thinking that something's going to hold you back or something's not going to work for you because of that. And that leads me on to what I was saying earlier that, I had this conversation with a guy before and he said, look, Julian, I've only just met you. You're a nice guy. You're playing victim. And automatically I was defensive. I was like, hey, he's like, no, but I don't mean to be rude, but playing the victim, you're not a prisoner no more. You're an entrepreneur. Come forward as an entrepreneur. You'd stop playing this. Oh yeah, but this has happened to me because I've been in prison and yeah, but you know, I've had a tough life. And so every mistake or every failure in life, you're going to attribute to your past or are you going to take responsibility for the fact that you're allowing that to happen that's probably why it's happening <laughs> you should keep telling yourself that get off your ass stop playing this victim and do something and when you present yourself you present yourself as an entrepreneur and that's the energy that people will take share your story let your story become you I've always been reluctant that's why I will only really do interviews in America I don't really do interviews in the UK um, because I, in some ways I'm embarrassed and I've got family and I kind of want to protect them as well. I still feel an element of sadness. seems like everything I go for or everything I try, the, the past comes and bites me back in the bottom. And that could be in love. That could be in business. At yeah, prison, it's not that hard.
you know, I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it and I'm not going to try to say it's a nice place because it's definitely not a nice place because mentally, if you're not strong, you're going to be in trouble. Physically, you've got a bed, you've got a roof. Sometimes you've got a TV, you can get books. You know, it's not the end of the world. We've just gone through a national lockdown with COVID. It's not that much different, to be fair. But it's what happens when you're out. That's where the true strength comes in. And if you don't take heed whilst you're in prison and take some of the positivity that you can from prison, then you're just going to end up in that revolving door. And that's where reoffending comes from. And trust me, I've been down. In this four years, I've been down. I've been homeless, basically. I've always kept the faith and I've always kept the goal. And I've never, thank God, I've never had to actually sleep on the street. And I don't think I would really like to. And I've never had to commit offences. And I think if you, regardless of what God you believe in or higher entity or power, if you believe someone's there for you and you put good out there, you will definitely get good back. Well, you definitely have an incredible life story. And it really sounds that you are you are really learning from it and you are looking for ways on how to teach others, right? And how to move forward very differently. And I think that all the ideas you have is really great. And I wish you the best success. And, you know, may it all turn out well. And may you become a serial entrepreneur because I think you really deserve that. And I'm also really appreciative of how open you are, how much you shared of your very personal struggles. So I thank you very much for this interview. We all face struggles. That's why I feel like if I express myself more, it will resonate with others to do better. I really appreciate this. I'm happy to support you. What Chance is created in New York with cover art by Hernan Braberman and original music by Max Elias.